Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. We observe today not a victory of party, but a celebration of freedom. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. The Human Zoo, where they don't hide away the sick animals. Dangerous mid-morning debate with the great dictator. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham. Stand to attention when I'm talking to you! On Talk Radio. Dismiss! Good morning and welcome to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham right here on Talk Radio. We're going back to the future this morning as we watch former Prime Minister John Major return to the front line when he accuses the current Prime Minister, Boris Johnson, of behaving like, get this, a dishonest estate agent. That's right, the man who once had an affair with Edwina Curry and who masterminded the Back to Basics campaign for a collection of Tory adulterers and swindlers in his own cabinet has plotted his comeback to politics just in time to join the Don't Panic Brigade down at the Supreme Court. Meanwhile, the Prime Minister of Finland is the latest pipsqueak to emerge from the Euro swamp to issue the latest Brexit dictum. Apparently we've only got 12 more days to come up with a plan in writing or it's curtains for us. Oh really? Well I'm sorry I don't remember ever asking the Prime Minister of Finland uh, for his opinion on anything. Thanks very much indeed. Judging by the way our MPs, MEPs were treated in the European Parliament yesterday it can't come soon enough. And by the way Anti, uh, for that apparently is his name. The next time you want to hear from Pipsqueak Central we'll let you know. 0344 499 1000 Coming up, we'll be looking into that Labour activist and lawyer Omar Salem who took it upon himself to berate Boris Johnson at Whips Cross University Hospital yesterday in full view of a camera crew who were happily recording the Prime Minister's visit. He said his daughter nearly died because the NHS, in his words, has been destroyed. It's a murky world and, as usual, there are several ways of interpreting what happened and why. 0344 499 1000. Coming up later on, we'll also be talking to the independence travel guru Simon Calder about the BA strike being called off and Susie Dent is joining us as well. Uh, so we'll have a few words with her. You're listening to me, Mike Graham, right here on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, for those of you who were paying attention yesterday, you would know that not only uh, was there a load of stuff going on down at the Supreme Court uh, where the government's lawyers were arguing with uh, Gina Miller's lawyers about whether or not Boris Johnson knew what he was doing when he spoke to the Queen. Uh, you know, the rigmarole and the nastiness goes on and on and on. Meanwhile, uh, there was a sort of hijacking going on uh, at a hospital uh, down here in the south east of England where Boris Johnson was approached by a man uh, who was so angry uh, that his daughter was apparently being badly treated by the NHS that he thought he'd take some time out and have a go at the Prime Minister over it. Turns out, of course, that he's a Labour activist. It turns out that he's once worked for Emily Thornberry. It turns out there's pictures of him standing on a stage with John McDonnell. And it turns out that he's also a lawyer. Now, it comes as no surprise to me that all of those things are true because as soon as it happened, I thought to myself, do you know what? 
I bet this guy is an activist. Meanwhile, over in the European Parliament, of course, the MEPs were supposed to be having a debate about Brexit. But guess what? Hardly any of them actually bothered to show up. And those who did bother to show up, most of them from the Brexit party, were ridiculously and very undemocratically treated, where they were left almost incapable of speaking. Have a listen to this, because this is what happened to one of the MEPs, Ben Habib. For 30 seconds for both the question and then 30 seconds for the answer. Mr Habib. For three years we've heard that the EU is a rules-based system. Mr Rangel mentioned the preparedness of the EU to negotiate with us a, a new form of withdrawal agreement, perhaps some alteration to the backstop. But actually, I just want to remind this chamber that by its own volition, Clause 12 of the agreement which gives effect to the extension until 31st October prohibits any opening of the withdrawal agreement and any further renegotiation of that agreement. So how is it that this rules-based system you, I'm really can sorry. take that approach? Well, I'm not going to ask you to even answer that because the question came after the 30 seconds. The rest was a statement. That is quite an extraordinary set of circumstances, is it not? Uh, that was Myred McGuinness, who's an Irish politician who has served as the first vice president of the European Parliament since 2017. She's been an MEP from Ireland since July 2004, and she's a member of Fine Gael, uh, part of the European People's Party. What an extraordinary lack of democracy they seem to practice over there. Let's find out uh, straight away from somebody who was also there yesterday, Alex Phillips, uh, Brexit MEP, uh, of course, for the southeast of England. Alexandra, a very good morning to you. Welcome. Good morning. And you know what? That wasn't an isolated incident. That was the pattern of behaviour for the whole session. I even experienced it myself. There was a Lib Dem MEP who stood up in Parliament and associated me with murdering an election official in Kenya. You couldn't make this stuff up. And then when my colleague Belinda blue-carded to put in a response, she was refused the blue card by the MEPs making accusations about the Brexit party being foreign-funded. And then she decided to blue card from another speaker. And that speaker was a different MEP from a different country. And the, the chair, the same Moravia Guinness, turned around and said, no, you can't blue card someone in your same group. We're not even sitting in a group. We're non-affiliated because we think we're on our way out. And so even then you had a French MEP stand up and read the riot act saying you're treating these people undemocratically and quite rightly so. But it's an extraordinary situation, Alexandra, because we're only really finding out about how the European Parliament works now that you guys have gone there. I mean, I was following all of your Twitter feeds yesterday and I was quite astounded. I mean, you know, I'm really reasonably long in the tooth. I've seen most things come and go. You know, I've seen all sorts of proroguings of Parliament going on in the past. John Major's, of course, very fresh in my mind. I've seen dictatorships fall. I've seen Boris Yeltsin standing on a tank in the middle of Moscow. What I've never seen before is a practically empty chamber discussing what is meant to be the most important issue at hand for the European Union right now. Yeah, and you know what? I mean, this, this goes on in every single area of the EU institutions. They have this thing called a cordon sanitaire, and anybody who speaks out against the EU institutions behind closed doors, the people who are Europhiles, block them from having any positions of power. Right. And, it, you know, this just goes on and on and on. Not only that yesterday, the Brexit Party, all 29 of us have been in the chamber for almost every debate. When one of us is speaking and we have tried to book as much speaking time as possible on a range of issues, we take the job seriously, we're there to support one another, we're really doing our work. And when I sat in the chamber for most of yesterday, do you know what I saw? The other British MEPs, during the Brexit debate, they weren't even there. They came in to vote on the resolution to ask for an extension and buggered off again. Yeah. And do you know what that means? If they vote, they get paid their daily allowance. It's That's absolutely staggering, for. isn't it? They but also, but also... 
the way that the chairwoman operated there, Myrid McGuinness, um, basically saying, I mean, I watched it several times. I couldn't quite believe my eyes. You know, she waits oh. until the question is asked, apparently after the 32nd point at which the question should have been asked, and then says, oh, well, we can't answer that because it's two seconds over the limit. I mean, it's like well, somebody, somebody you rent a boat from in Regent's Park. So she uses every trick in the book. During the last session, Louis Stebenbrice, our MEP for Scotland, an incredible black politician, was making the point that there was no diversity in Parliament because they want to have a, a, an equal balance of men and women on the European Commission. And he said, there's not a single black face you see in this Parliament unless it's the cleaners. And I think all of your virtue signalling is rubbish. He got chastised for using the word rubbish. He actually got an offence slammed upon him. Meanwhile, Chris Davis and the Brexit Party kept shouting the word, I don't want to say it, but, you know, the dog's Yes. Brexit. And he shouted it repeatedly. They had T-shirts with that on in chamber, and Louis used the word rubbish. He Incredible. Got, he got criticised, and nothing happens to them. It, it's remarkable. You couldn't make it up. You really couldn't. And thank goodness you guys are there, because, like I say, this is the first time we've actually seen how this operation operates. And it really is incredibly undemocratic, for what I can see. Yeah, and actually, one thing that we're trying to do, we have a little YouTube channel that we're, we, we've built, Brexbox, and every week we're trying to, you know, blow the doors off this thing and expose what happens inside. Because, I mean, actually, most of the MEPs in this place, whatever their political persuasions, are really gracious, friendly, decent people. You know, you might shout things across chamber with each other, but afterwards you can have a drink in the bar. But that's not the case for the left-wing British MPs. They really spit bile. They, they I mean, it's one of us. Some of their treatment of us is just beyond the pale. Chris Davis, especially the Lib Dem, constantly going after June Mummery, who's on the fishing committee that he heads up. Um, I mean, I'm not running spats in corridors sometimes. The behaviour of some of our MEPs is, is a disgrace, but I'd like to say that it's not us. We will defend English honour, British honour in that chamber when people from our own country are shouting that our Prime Minister is a dictator. We will then bellow across chamber, you know, wrong, he asked for a general election, but they say all sorts of horrendous things. And what about the Finnish? I don't know if they were there yesterday, because the Finnish Prime Minister, a bloke called Antti Rin, I'm going to call him anti-democratic, just because it has a better ring to it. Yeah. What's it got to do with him, by the way, how many days we've got left to negotiate uh, or come up with a plan? Ah, well, this one is interesting, because actually the Finnish have the rotating um, presidency of the council at the moment, so he actually is sitting in a top job and a decision-maker. Um, so in that respect, he's colluding with little Macron, who always has to, you know, pipe up with something or the other, and try and play the big boy on the world stage. But they won't get their own way. I mean, look, if you remember, Angela Merkel said to Boris Johnson, you've got 30 days to come up a month ago. You've got 30 days to come up with your plan for the Irish backstop. Well, has he done it and that one's out in three days' time? So I think this is basically, they're trying to pile pressure on Boris Johnson to get him to show his card. And I don't think this is, this is binding at all. At the end of the day, Merkel gets her own way. She doesn't want us to leave without a deal. The EU Parliament voted yesterday by two-thirds majority to um, ask to get Britain to ask for an extension to Article 50. Von der Leyen has said she wants a year-long extension. Um, so I, I, I wouldn't actually put too much store in what Macron and um, the Finnish <laughs> Prime Minister have to say. No, quite. Well, we spoke to Nigel Farage yesterday on the show, just after he'd made his speech, where he referred to the Luxembourg uh, Prime Minister as a pipsqueak. Um, how did that go down with uh, my learned friends in the chamber? Well, you know, actually, there are members from other countries. I mean, we sit, they organise the chamber in a sort of rainbow fashion. So you've got the very far left all the way to the very far right and the naughty people at the back, the Eurosceptics. And the big block of us, we're not in a group, but there's a chunk of us who sit together. And they very often ride to our rescue and will stand up and defend Britain and defend our referendum. And he was highly criticised. But, I mean, wasn't it funny? It was like, you're, you know, 
Luxembourg hasn't been in Eurovision since 1993. The minute he saw a podium and a microphone, he couldn't resist it. There's <laughs> loads of people and some sequins. He'd have sashayed up to it, I'm sure. Yeah, well, absolutely right. But, I mean, you know, how much longer do you think you're going to have to go through with all this stuff? Because, obviously, uh, you know, we've still got October the 31st as a big deadline looming large. I mean, even Nigel was saying yesterday he's not entirely certain that Boris Johnson's going down the right road, uh, that he's not going to come up with some sort of deal which is actually going to be not much different from what Theresa May came up with. Um, I mean, how, how many, uh, you know, sets of clothing uh, have you brought with you? Because are you coming back in October or, or end, of no end of November or what? Do you know what? I keep going from one side to the other on this, one side to the other. But when I really step back from this, and I think if I had just come down from Mars or someone had said, look at the Brexit situation, this is what's happened in three years and this is the state of play now, it doesn't look good. You've got a prime minister who so far has basically been beaten up in every running battle he's tried to fight. He's um, presiding over a minority government, currently his government's in court, you know, being taken to court for what is actually a perfectly legal ruling. Um, I mean, and now you've got a situation where I think Remainers feel with the, after the um, Ben bill, which takes no deal off the table, I think they think that they have now got the whip hand. And sadly, that might be the case because the powers that be, the people who have hands-on levers in our democracy and also over here in, in um, Brussels and Strasbourg, don't want us to leave. It's that simple. And I remember I was in the European Parliament working there when we were supposed to leave on the 29th of March eons ago, and there was a real palpable sense that we were going. They started packing up our offices in boxes by this point. I don't get any of that feeling on the ground over here. I don't think people over here think it's going to happen. And what were all these MEPs doing while you were sitting in the chamber yesterday uh, having these conversations and trying to get your voices heard? Where was everybody else? I don't know, but I'll tell you what. We, I'm just standing by the media area outside the chamber because I've got to pop back in in a minute and vote. Um, and you've got these big booths, these soundproof booths, where you can have telephone conversations and do radio interviews. I definitely just saw one of them sitting in there eating a croissant. So, yeah, I don't know what they do. They, they roll up to work when they want. They pop, pop in just to vote. And they think they're very self-important. They have their one minute of fame, go into chamber. They'll turn up to make their speech, have it captured, stick it on Twitter, look at me working hard, and then they, then they go again. I mean, you know, the amount they're being paid to do one minute's work a day, I mean, it's great, isn't it? But, but we're not doing that. In all honesty, we're the hardest working politicians in this place. And I think the other MEPs see that. The staff here see that. They see that we are the first people in, the last people out, always in chamber, asking for speaking time in every single debate and fighting our corner. Yeah, and what's happening today? What's your sort of Thursday, September the 19th looking like in, part, in the European Parliament? Well, it's mass exodus day on a Thursday, so there's voting <laughs> at 12 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, no, seriously, all, a lot of them have already... I'll tell you what's going to happen. So we're an hour ahead of you here, so we're coming up to half past 11. At the moment, the chamber's empty. If you can go onto Parliament TV, viewers back home, have a look at this. Right. The chamber's practically empty, apart from a big block of Brexit Party MEPs at the back. You can see us from a mile off, because we're the biggest party in that Parliament. All the other seats are empty. It's foreign affairs speeches at the moment. So I think there's three votes on foreign affairs coming up at 12. If you sit and watch Parliament TV from now, you will suddenly see at 12 o'clock the chamber magically becomes full with everybody. They press their little buttons to vote, then they go and get their train. If they don't press those buttons, they don't get their money. So tough to get on a Eurostar, I imagine, from Brussels at a roundabout sort of between any time between 12.30 and 2.00. Well, oh no, I mean, they actually have, Parliament has its own magic charter train that goes from Strasbourg to Brussels to ferry all of the staff and all of the MEPs back to Brussels if that's where they wish to go. And then you'll see a fleet of cars. 
genuinely, it's around three o'clock when the very last of business finishes and everyone just leaves en masse. There's um, a big housing estate that surrounds the Parliament because it's not in the centre of the city. And they actually close the roads of that housing estate to allow the cavalcade of um, parliamentary vehicles chauffeuring MEPs back to airports and train stations to get through. It's incredible. Absolutely incredible. Well, listen, great to talk to you, Alex. Thanks very much indeed. Alexandra uh, Phillips, Brexit Party MEP for the southeast of England, giving us a pretty good insight, really, into how the European Union works, about how uh, the way and the mechanism of the European Parliament works. And I have to say, uh, after watching what I watched yesterday, it's very clear to me that it is certainly not in any way democratic. It is not. If you think it's ridiculous in the House of Commons, check out some of the stuff that's on Twitter that's posted by uh, Alexandra Phillips and some of the other Brexit Party MEPs. Empty chambers, people sitting uh, in charge of a debate in which hardly anybody is taking part, limiting the amount of time to be uh, used down to 30 seconds. And then if you go to 32 seconds, they say, oh, well, obviously we can't answer that question because the question was actually put at second number 32. I mean, literally, it's like watching children in a kindergarten. It is disgraceful, it is disgusting, and if you ever wanted to have a reason for why we want to leave the European Union and all of its ridiculous, pompous little organisations, that is good enough for me. 0344 499 1000 is the number. We'll take your calls coming up next on Talk Radio. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Now, this is a subject that we visit quite often on this show because one of the things that I find completely and utterly unacceptable in this country is that you work hard all your life, uh, you manage to find yourself enough money to buy yourself some property, you manage to then invest that money in your future by making sure that the property value increases, as it does in most situations, over the course of a few decades. You then would like to think that what you can then do is pass that property down uh, to your sons, to your daughters, to your nephews, to your nieces, maybe even to your brothers or your sisters. But it turns out that more and more people now are being forced to sell the homes that they have saved so much for over the course of decades. Because if you've got more than £23,250 in savings, which basically covers almost any property that you might own, including a beach hut, by the way, uh, you have to sell it off in order to pay for your own care. Let's talk to Shelley Hopkinson now uh, from Independent age and find out why things have got so bad. Shelley, a very good morning to you. Good morning, thanks for having me. Not at all. This is a terrible, terrible state of affairs, isn't it? Yeah, it's a really traumatic experience. Independent Age, we've brought out a new report today called Home In, in On Free Personal Care. And what that does is it looks at this experience that people are having to actually sell their homes in order to pay for their care in later life. So you quoted some of the figures before. We've actually found that in the last 20 years, 330,000 older people have had to sell their homes to pay for care. Wow, that's incredible, isn't it? And is it a fair way of doing it? Because, I mean, I, I guess one of the things that you're looking at is whether it can be done any differently absolutely not we don't think it's fair at all and that's why we're calling for free personal care so at the moment as you say if people have 23,500 in the bank they're expected to then pay for all of their care needs it's a complete lottery because for example with something a condition like cancer the NHS rightly supports you and, and cares for you in that way whereas if you happen to get dementia in later life you're expected to pay for all of your care 
So we just don't think that's fair at all. And we think that the government need to introduce a long-term funding settlement to address this problem. And we believe that that should be free personal care to ensure that basic needs help with things around the house, like getting washed, uh, getting dressed, going to the toilet. Those things really need to be in place for people so that they don't have to worry about money and they don't have to sell their home to pay for it. Because it doesn't seem right, does it, that if you basically do nothing over the course of your life, make nothing, you know, uh, achieve nothing, do nothing, make no money at all, uh, that you get the same treatment, but you get it for free. Well, local authorities are completely stretched um, with their funding, and, and that's what's leading to a system whereby people are having to fund their own care. So, as you say, it de-incentivises saving. People have lived in homes for a long time. All their memories are there. They want to stay there. There's a lot of emotion attached to this problem. And then they end up developing a condition in later life that means that they actually have to sell that in order to, to fund their residential care. Yeah. I mean, is there an, an alternative? I mean, if you were to say the free, you know, the care should be free, where does that come from? Where does that money get found? So free personal care, which is what we're calling for, we've looked at a number of funding options to pay for this so that in total there were nine funding options that we looked at. It would include small increases here and there on the individual, but there's a number of options that could be done to pay for this. And it's not actually that much money um, in total, given the huge funding gap in the system at the moment. Um, over the sort of next decade, it really wouldn't amount to that much. Yeah. So, I mean, it's doable, in other words. It's absolutely doable. And we've set out a number of options for the government so that they can look at this and work out what's the best way of, of raising this revenue so that we can make sure that one individual isn't having to pay hundreds of thousands of pounds for their care just because they were so unfortunate to develop a condition in later life. Right. And what is the, the, the sort of regulatory situation for people? I mean, at what point do they find themselves being forced to sell uh, their, their homes? Is it something that they are forced to do? Is it something that they're choosing to do? Well, some people might choose to sell their homes um, if they go into residential care, but the point of free personal care is it would allow people to receive care in the home for longer. Yeah. People are really fearful of the system at the moment and it leads them to have their needs escalated and then they're sort of reaching a crisis point and they really need that care, so they're having to move into residential care. And if they've got those um, savings and assets, as we discussed, then they're, you know, they're having to pay for it themselves because the local authority isn't able to fund it. Right. And do your, oh, does your organisation have a view on who administers the social care in this country because it seems to me that it would be a better idea to kind of separate it out from local authorities and to give it to an independent group if you like you know still it would be part of the public sector but somehow you know it seems to me that but the, the, the local authorities are the wrong organizations to be running something like this the fact of the matter is that there's not the funding for it and that needs to come from national government. Now, you know, local authorities are able at a local level to understand the needs of their local populations, but if they haven't got the funds and they haven't got the resources to do that, then they're having to make really, really difficult choices. And that's what leads to a system where they're not able to support people and the cost falls back on the individual and yeah. back on those savings. Because whenever I talk to the local government authority or to any sort of local councillors, they always complain that they haven't got enough money to to do the things that they want to do and they always blame the social care budget because the social care budget keeps for them going up yeah well seven billion around seven billion has been taken out of the system since 2010 so that's huge cuts to social care and it's such an important important mechanism at, at a local level so we know that 1.4 million people in the in england uh, have unmet care needs so they're not even getting their care needs met so that means that the people who are accessing local authority care need to be able to do that in a way that's financially viable. Yeah, right. And I mean, um, 
obviously you're looking at this very much in a long-term manner, I'm assuming. I mean, how soon could this system be changed if you were able to get it changed? We think this system could be changed immediately. So um, Boris Johnson said on the steps of Downing Street in his first address that he wanted to make sure nobody has to sell their home to pay for care. Well, we've set out all of the evidence, the, the funding, the affordability, all of the benefits of free personal care. And we think that this is something that the government should be implementing straight away. We can't possibly wait any longer. The system is in absolute crisis. It's at breaking point. And we need to make sure people are getting the care that they need in later life. And have you got any allies in the government at the moment that are banging the same drum? <laughs> well, as I say, um, Boris Johnson himself had committed to this, so we, we do hope that it's something that he'll take forward. It's been a it's a it's a difficult issue. It's something it's been a bit of a political hot potato for the yeah. last twenty years, passed around um, various proposals made at general elections and so forth, but nothing actually set in stone and, and no change made. And the whole time more and more people are in dire need, more and more people are becoming fearful of accessing the system and more and more, as we've proven, are having to actually sell their homes to pay for care. Because it feels like a massive change, doesn't it? I think that's probably what people's kind of um, hesitance maybe is about something, changing something like this because it seems like such a, a huge problem. Well, actually, lots of people don't realise that you do have to fund your own care in later life. Yeah. So, obviously, we have the NHS system, which is there for our health needs. But people don't realise that that's not then covering social care needs. We need to see some parity between social care and health care. And we think that introducing free personal care is one way of doing that. So, the cost of an individual's care is actually covered and is free at the mm. point of use in the same way as the NHS. And is there an issue with some of the private companies that are providing some of this care? Because they have been accused in the past, I know certainly with the residential homes, and I know it's a slightly different issue, um, have been accused in the past of really milking the system. Well, look, we need, a, we need a, a wide market. We need to ensure that quality of care is there. We think that by setting out a long-term funding settlement, by in injecting that money into the system, ensuring that the resources are there and that it's sustainable, we can then turn to quality, we can then turn to issues around workforce, some of the issues we've seen in recent years in care homes being rated inadequate. So once we have the funding in place, we can then really focus on the system and, and address all of the other problems that exist as well. OK. Shelley, thanks very much indeed. Shelley Hopkinson, Public Affairs Manager at Independent Age, telling us why uh, we need to change the system. We really do need to change the system. 400 homes sold every single week. That's each and every week. If you took that uh, as far as 80 homes a day being sold on a five-day week basis, uh, which is an incredibly high number by people who have to sell their homes in order to pay for their own care. This is an actual unmitigated disaster. Forget about Brexit. This is something that they should be fixing straight away and as soon as possible. And they should do what independent age are suggesting, uh, which is to bring in one or two tiny, tiny taxes, which would make it possible to make this care free. Because that's what it should be, surely. 0344 499 1000. It will not come as any great surprise to you to know uh, that currently down at the Supreme Court, uh, we've got Ronan Lavery QC, uh, who is speaking for the Northern Ireland part of the Supreme Court challenge. He's talking about how Brexit is poisoning the harmony of Northern Ireland. Well, of course, it turns out he's a Remainer. He's another lawyer. He's another Remainer. He's actually been reminded by one of the High Court judges, the Supreme Court judges, that this case is not about Brexit, matey. So keep a lid on it and let's just talk about the prorogation, shall we? This is Talk Radio. 
Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Across the UK, online and on DAB. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Welcome back to the Independent Republic of Mike Graham. You know what to do. 0344 499 1000. Uh, you can tweet us, of course, at Talk Radio. Uh, we've got lots more to do coming up a little bit later on. Uh, we'll be finding out what the catastrophic effects are of working as a Facebook moderator. Uh, and the answer is no. You don't actually get bored to death looking at other people's stuff. Uh, there is a different answer uh, to which we will tell you. Down at the old Supreme Court, uh, carry on panicking is still going on. Uh, we're hearing still from Ronan Lavery, who's getting it in the neck from some of the uh, chief justices who have basically told him to stop abusing their politeness, according to our man Ollie Cole, who's live tweeting from there. Uh, he says he continued the, the, the judges are continuing to press the lawyer on how his arguments are relevant to this case. This isn't going down well with the justices at all. Uh, he's of course the guy representing Northern Ireland's case against the government, uh, which has already been dismissed in Northern Ireland, by the way, uh, and it's now being put before the Supreme Court. We'll find out some more uh, on that and when John Major turns up uh, later on as well. We're going to go back to your calls in a moment. A couple of tweets here. One from Arthur uh, about social care. He says, my dad went into the best home affordable at 92 by selling property. It was £675 a week. We calculated it would last four years. He was in poor health. At 96, the money ran out. The care home agreed to let him stay for his pension and allowances. He's 99 next March and the fees are now £750 a week. It's absolute robbery, isn't it? It's absolutely incredible. Uh, let's talk to Simon in Orpington who's got a story. Hi, Simon. Hi, Mike. How yeah, you good to speak with you, mate. Yeah. Um, good. Yeah, on this um, social care funding, yeah. I think it's incredibly unjust. Yeah. Um, and the trouble is, Mike, it's always the middle classes, the middle earners, who are the government's cash cow. Because yeah. the wealthy protect their money, uh, the lower earners don't have any assets to go after. So, therefore, the government goes after the middle earners. As ever. But I do think people have to make um, tough choices, Mike. You know, do you want more funding for schools, the NHS, the police force, etc., etc., because actually there isn't enough money for everything. Yeah. Um, and I think as well, like, politics is a cursed business, isn't it? Because if you stand on a manifesto and give people um, the facts, you know, on, on, on its position, you don't get the votes. 
that's true. And that's, that's, that's what Theresa May got wrong the last time around. But maybe she got it wrong just because she didn't really have a proper plan. Surely there must, it can't be beyond the wit of man to see that this is incredibly unfair and the whole system needs to be changed. Yeah, I mean, the trouble is, though, these things, like the NHS, it gets so weaponized, doesn't it? If you come out with a good plan, um, the other side, the left, can just use a phrase like domestic fat, and people will run with that. Yeah. It's really, really hard to bring about change. I think Boris as well, um, I think he's in danger of trying to outspend the left. He needs to actually be selling the sort of the philosophy of conservatism rather than just going around and slashing the money that we haven't got. Yeah. Um, well, he's got a lot of repairing to do, hasn't he? I mean, the problem for Boris, I think, is twofold. One, he's obviously got a massive job on his hands trying to get us out of the European Union because if he doesn't do that, uh, he's a goner, basically. Second of all, uh, all of yeah. the other sort of Tory policies that he's trying to bring back has been have been kind of watered down over the years by Theresa May. Even though she's quite hardline Tory, she her impression that she gave was of somebody who was a bit of a ditherer, somebody who wasn't really a, a believer in in sort of conservatism. Mark, I absolutely agree with that. But that's why I think Boris has got to be cleverer because if you think of Thatcher. Um, she she you know she won many times because she went after a certain group, didn't she? Yeah. Which was like basically white man band. Yes. People who don't want the state giving them anything, want to go about their own life and make something of it. And then, obviously, Tony Blair tried to do the same. He had Mondeo Man, didn't yeah, he? Yeah, that's right. And but from, so, uh, from Basildon, you've, you've always got to go after Absolutely. the middle ground, haven't you? Exactly. That's where elections are won and lost. It's the middle ground. And that's where, unfortunately, Brexit has changed the, 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 the sort of schematic, if you like, because we're now dealing with people who want to stay in the European Union, who won't vote Tory. So how do you get them? How does he get them? Well, I think Boris, if, if, if he goes, if he sticks with a clear Brexit, uh, then he'll win an election. He may have to do it with a Brexit party majority. Yeah. But he needs to get it done and out the way. Um, because whatever ha election happens, you know, very soon, it is a Brexit election. Yes. Everything else is just going to pale into the... You know, into the it is. It's a Brexit election. He needs to get that sorted. Um, and then he can actually move on, as I say, hopefully, be a Conservative and start... Start convinced with actually on the, on the philosophy of it. Yes, no, absolutely right, Simon. Great call. Thank you very much indeed. Let's talk to Peter, who's in Folkestone. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. Morning. Social care. Uh, my my dad is in a care home. He was in a care home in Birmingham, and then he was uh, in a care home somewhere else, and then somewhere else, and then now down in the Kent area. Uh -huh. um, but during the course of one of the moves from care home to care home. You have to apply to the care homes. They're very selective in certain cases about who they take on their books, you see. And do they investigate uh, you sort of financially before anything else? Some, some of them try to do that. Um, one, of, one of them uh, said, OK, right, well, we're going to accept your father. I said, oh, fantastic. And they said, that'll be a £2,000 admin fee, please. Oh, really? Uh, oh, yes, Unbelievable, isn't it? They've got every trick in the book, these guys, haven't they? Uh, that's what, they, and, the, and the way they... The way they cost the arrangement is xyz is for rent and yyz is for care right right so you find at the care home they, they balance the care home out to about two thousand or so pounds per month mm. right which is like what the council pays and then you find that the rent for your parent or your elderly relative is two and a half thousand pounds for the single room that they are in right okay for four weeks so they right? break it down ah right. uh, voila exactly so that these so they they can claim that the council rate and your rate is the same, yeah? 
but uh, you just end up paying through the nose for your rent. Yeah. Two and a half thousand pounds for a one-bedroom space sounds like quite a lot to me. Well, it does, rather. Um, and what happens when you te technically run out of money, then? Uh, well, that's, that's another good question. Um, I, my, my dad has burned through now some nearly £300,000 worth of care. Um, and the, the one point I wanted to make, Mike, most of all, is that a lot of this conversation is about people electing to go into care, realising they have a problem with going to care. My father was admitted to hospital as a normal everyday bloke, right? right. And then in hospital was assessed as to not be allowed to go home and live on his own anymore. He must be going into a care home because he needs to be he needs that level of care to be looked after. Yeah. Right? So the state, the medical system, pushed my father into the care system, right? So technically against his will, because he still wanted to go home. He was poorly, but, you know, he was saying, I want to go home. They said, no, you can't go home. You've got right. to get the care home. Right. So he's there like that. So the state have actually forced him to blow every single penny that they ever had um, between him and my mother, who passed away, uh, on, on care. And that means, uh, presumably, so I mean, how does that make you feel in terms of an asset that they could have passed on to you? Well, you know, as far as, far as I'm concerned, that, um, you know, that, that, was, that was theirs, and, you know, it's, it's for them to use. But my problem is, my, my real anger about the whole thing is, um, that money he, he and my mother had earned had already been taxed. Yes. Had already been paid. They paid their contribution. They were a couple of working people. They invested things wisely. They did all of that. And, and, and I think I've said um, <clears throat> to someone before, you know, if you, if you do this, if you basically reap the houses and the investments of everyone that has ever worked hard throughout their lives and got a bit lucky and advanced themselves, you're killing the dream. Yeah, you you're, are. You're because why bother? I mean, I would say this to people now. No point in buying a house. Spend the money you've got. Don't bother saving it. Uh, because when you get to the point where you need to be looked after, they're going to take it all off you anyway. And there's one further insult to injury mm. to go on to all of this, Mike, right? So you have a power of attorney. You, you give your relatives power of attorney. They manage your finances for you. Or you go to the court, you become an official court-appointed deputy. Yeah. That's when people can't give away power of attorney, when they're already declared incapable. You have to go through a court system to manage their finances, right? Yeah. There is an organisation called the Office of the Public Guardian, a government department that is meant to overwatch how powers of attorney and, of, and, and official appointed deputies conduct their business. Yeah. They do the sum total of diddly-flipping squat all year round and then they charge you between three and five hundred pounds a year right for their benefits of their services which 99 percent of the population never use i know shocking absolutely shocking story peter thank you for that great insights coming today uh, on this particular issue which tells me uh, that so many of you are trapped in this situation let's talk to david uh, who's in stoke hello david Hello, Mike. How are you? Yeah, very well, sir. If you can turn the radio down, I won't be able to hear myself in the background. <laughs> right. Uh, it's. Uh, I was just talking about my mother. She, she's mother-in-law. She's just gone into care home in the last three months. Yeah. Uh, and we've had to agree what's called a top-up fee. 
the home is £750 a week. We've had to sell the house. Right. But once that money runs out, then she is council funded. Right. Uh, the local council will contribute £490 a week. Right. They take the mother-in-law's pension of 170 right. then somebody has to agree to pay the rest of the amount to the £750 so she can actually stay in that home. And that'll that, presumably be you, will it? That, that's, I am the lucky guy who's got to pay the money. That's but, shocking, know, isn't it? Like £90, that's £90 a week. Yeah. Which is, like nearly £400 a month, which is a good way for somebody's mortgage that you're actually paying each month just so that the mother look is staying in a decent place uh, for the rest of the days. And what's the alternative? Shocking. None. There's no alternative. We had to pay for a... We, we had a financial assessment done by the local council mm. and we had to pay for them to come to my house to financially assess the books of the mother-in-law and our books and our willingness to pay for that top-up fee. Goodness and that goes me. for every single person in, in our local council. That has to happen. And it, people don't realise that once the home that their parents are is now going council-funded, council that they've got to agree to pay some money as well. Mm. That's absolutely and dreadful, isn't it? It's getting worse, this story. I had no idea quite how bad it was. David, thanks for your call. Fantastic uh, pieces of information coming in here on the Independent Republican Mike Graham because this is the place to tell your story, to give us your information because we care about what you say, not just about what the officials tell us because this is the only way you get to the truth. This is the way you find out what's really happening and in social care, ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you, the system uh, is not just a breaking point, it's broken. It's completely and utterly useless and people who should not be being treated as badly as they are should not be being rinsed for the money and their families should not be being rinsed for the money either. It's absolutely disgusting as far as I'm concerned. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Time to say a very, very warm welcome and a good afternoon to Mr Simon Calder. Simon, a very good afternoon. Hello. Uh, yeah, speaking to you from a very busy Knightsbridge. Um, so forgive the uh, noise, Mike, but there's so much happening on the world of uh, travel. A few numbers for you. Uh, 4,300 pilots at British Airways. And uh, would you believe that um, three quarters of voters have strike? And they've done the most astonishing thing, which is say, uh, yeah, we're not going to strike after all. So, yeah, uh, I mean, what, uh, what, was the, uh, what was the final kind of settlement all based around then? Have they got what they wanted? Have they got a bit of what they wanted? No, exactly the opposite. This is a dispute, Mike, that uh, the likes of which I have never seen. Um, and obviously I've been covering the aviation industry since, what, early in the 17th century, yeah. uh, about the time you started broadcasting. The, uh, <laughs> Very harsh. Uh, the, the, in, in the sense that, oh, yeah, there's all obviously a compromise to be reached. This one's a little bit tricky because BA offering 11.5% over three years to British Airways pilots, which uh, I think a lot of people would say was pretty good. It's a deal that's already been signed off by nine out of ten British Airways employees in other roles, ground staff, engineers, uh, uh, cabin crew. And so BA really doesn't want to sort of uh, give anything to the pilots on top of that because they immediately the other unions are going to be on the phone saying, oi, we want to renegotiate. So BA kind of dug in. The pilots absolutely furious on the 9th and 10th of September. They grounded the entire British Airways operation, more or less, um, a couple of flights got yeah. out uh, um, just take, to take the Scottish rugby team to Japan. That was about it. Um, and uh, so we were all ready for another strike, 27th of um, September, so a week tomorrow. 
100,000 passengers have been told their flights have been cancelled. And then suddenly the pilot said, oh, tell you what, we will work normally. And this happened, Mike, at uh, quarter to three yesterday afternoon. It took two hours before British Airways even said anything to the passengers. When they did, they said, the strike's been called off. We're not sure what we're going to do yet. And um, I've been in touch with them this morning. They still don't know what they're going to be doing in terms of rescheduling, reinstating those cancelled flights or what. And uh, you've got 100,000 passengers, all of whom have their travel plans disrupted. And nobody knows whether actually they can go back to plan A because British Airways is going to fly those aircraft or what. And who's going to pay for the whole horrible well, indeed, I imagine a lot of people as well would have made other arrangements not expecting this to have happened, wouldn't they? Uh, certainly, yes. It's, uh, you know, I've been contacted by loads of people who said, but hang on, I cancelled that trip. I booked another flight with someone else. It's more expensive. Who's going to pay if I can go back to plan A? People have shuffled their holiday dates around and rebooked hotels. So, I mean, whatever happens, there is going to be a cost to British Airways well into the millions yeah. of pounds might be into the tens of millions, but it seems to me, Mike, that the pilots realised that this was so, that BA was being so intransigent that effectively it could turn out to be kind of First World War all right. over again. Um, uh, just a kind of war of attrition eventually grinding down the airline's profitability until there was no money to do anything at all. And uh, they firmly put the ball into British Airways court saying, right, uh, We've made this uh, gesture. Now come back and um, uh, and, and talk to us. And, so, uh, and make us an offer we can't refuse. So, I mean, I guess, did they actually think, do you imagine, that they might bring the airline down if they didn't sort, sort well, themselves out? It, it's very easy to see. Um, look, the first strike cost uh, British Airways, I'd say, getting on for £100 million for two days, um, which is, you know, it's, it's about 5 or 6% of their profits. So... Um, you can imagine that if, if the pilot said, right, you, you know, we're really serious about this, we're going to talk, uh, we're going to take a week's action or 10 days action or whatever, yeah. you're very quickly going from a very profitable uh, airline to a kind of break-even or possibly loss-making airline. And, uh, you know, the amount of value that would have been destroyed mm. is um, really quite considerable. And as I've sort of observed from the day of the first strike, the Two sides are nominally arguing about a few tenths of 1%. Actually, what's beneath it is a lack of respect that the pilots feel the airline has yes. to them and the airline feeling that the pilots really don't know how lucky they are to be working for a successful airline and getting really quite impressive pay. So uh, right. uh, the two sides, I think, need relationship counselling rather than they need ACAS. <laughs> well, I think so, yeah. Because, I mean, a lot of people were critical of British Airways management, weren't they, at the time, saying, why don't you, you know, you're making quite a lot of money, why don't you just give a bit more of it to the pilots and then, you know, we should avoid this kind of behaviour in the future. Oh, sure. But but the last thing that British Airways wanted to do was was really give an inch yeah. to the pilots. And, and the, the, you know, if, you're a, if you're a pilot, if you're on, as typically they are, £100,000 a year, right. then if you're getting an extra 1%, um, which is really the average that they were, they were after, and they would have settled actually probably for a half a percent, yeah. then you're, you know, it's not going to make a huge difference. It's not, is it? No. Life. Still be able to afford the golf fees. Yes. Um, it's just that they feel that, they've, uh, that they are not being treated with due respect by British Airways 
and um, it's, it's just like a yeah, it's, it's, it's like a couple who are squabbling, um, and um, they just need to kind of uh, get get together and um, learn sort how to themselves do out. Yeah. So if you if you are because I actually I met a guy funnily enough when I was coming back from Portugal who had been uh, a, a victim of the the earlier strike. Um, because yeah. he had flown, he was like quite a wealthy guy, obviously. He'd flown from San Francisco to go to a wedding in Seville for the weekend, right? Um, he'd found that he couldn't get his flight back from Seville to London on BA. So he drove to Faro, got on an EasyJet oh. flight from Faro to London, <laughs> and then got a Norwegian flight back to San Francisco. So what would he be able to claim back from BA? Well, and that's the other aspect of it. Um, British Airways has been um, doing some rebooking of people, in, in his case. Uh, the airline should have just said, we're terribly sorry about this. Um, you know, not our fault, it's our pilots, but we understand that under European passenger rights rules, we have to um, look after you, and we've rebooked you on this and this and this, and um, we're very sorry. But uh, the refrain I've heard from an awful lot of passengers is that BA is simply saying, oh, we'll rebook you on one of our partner airlines, yeah. um, which very often doesn't include the two obvious airlines to many flights, which is... Uh, EasyJet and uh, Virgin Atlantic, right. and um, really just ignoring what the rules say. And as a result of that, um, the Civil Aviation Authority says that she's looking into BA. Meanwhile, um, many, many people are unhappy. They feel they haven't been given the uh, options that uh, British Airways is supposed to provide them. And uh, there's an awful lot of beyond the uh, $100 million or whatever that has already been lost in this dispute. Um, there's an unquantifiable amount in, in goodwill and uh, future bookings from people who feel cheesed off by all this. Yes, and quite. Assuming, of course, they do all manage to find a settlement, the pilots have said, don't worry, we've got a strike mandate till January. So uh, <laughs> you know, if, if, if you refuse to talk, we're, we're, we're going to come back. And that's going to, I mean, that's going to affect their sales, isn't it? Because, I mean, if I'm thinking of, say, going away over Christmas or something like that, or even half term, I'm thinking to myself, really don't want to book British Airways in case they go on strike again. And that's, that's the kind of weapon that all aviation workers have, and the airlines know it, yes. There is, uh, you can start causing damage to an airline without causing any damage to yourself if you're employed yes. in aviation, just by saying, threatening to strike, and then... Um, uh, they have to kind of cope with um, uh, c cope with that. So it's a it's a messy old business, uh, but one that um, hopefully has been resolved. Meanwhile, just to remind you that other airlines are available and other strikes are available. <laughs> um, it's day seven, I make it, of Ryanair's pilot strike. Um, pilots employed by the UK, right by Ryanair in the UK, unhappy about a whole range of things. Um, but it's also day seven where there has been not the slightest impact on the schedules. Isn't that brilliant? Well, that's, that's well, because I mean, Michael O'Leary knows how to run an airline, I have to say. Well, or, or divide and rule and bribe pilots to come in. I mean, there's a few reasons for it, Mike. Um, yeah, but the so, airline is the airline. So if you want to keep the airline in business, you keep the airline flying. And that's what he's doing. Uh, but it's much easier for him than, uh, than for uh, Alex Cruz, the uh, boss of BA. That's because... Um, Ryanair only has one kind of plane. It's a Boeing 737-800. If you fly one of those in Bulgaria, you can fly one in Britain. Yeah. So they can move their pilots around very easily. BA has, what, half a dozen different types. And if, you know, it's all very well uh, saying, oh, yeah, well, we'd love to fly a, um, uh, an Airbus A380. But if you've got one passenger who flies Boeing 787s and another one who flies 777s, then you're not going to... 
yeah, uh, quite. able to operate that. Um, and also, much lower degree of unionisation and a lot of employment. Yes. Yes, I remember speaking once to somebody from Buzz. We remember when they were sort of all subsumed into uh, uh, into Ryanair, I think, and he hired a load of the Buzz employees. Uh, and uh, he's, he, he, first of all, uh, when he walked into the room, said to everyone, uh, hands up, who's in a trade union? And a few people put their hands up, he threw them out. <laughs> uh, right, uh, yes. So, I mean, I think that's the O'Leary approach, I think you'll find. Let's talk yeah. about Booking.com, because they're still in yes. a bit of trouble, apparently still misleading their customers about how fast their rooms are going. Yeah, now let's, let's look at the background to this. The Competition and Markets Authority, which is... Yeah, it looks after fair trading. That's the idea anyway for um, uh, British consumers. It was very concerned at the um, way that the online travel agents, of which Booking.com is the most prevalent, were marketing um, to customers. So the idea will be um, if you want to uh, stay at a hotel in, well, London's fashionable Knightsbridge, you tap in hotels and it will offer you a whole load of things and it will probably come with other messages attached such as six people have booked this in the past 24 hours or um, we've only got one room left and uh, the competition and markets authority has been investigating booking.com and the rest about half a dozen of these big agents and said that you really can't not tell the truth which strikes obviously to you and I is sort of self-evident yes and they've um, uh, been told to clean up their act, and they've said they've cleaned up their act, but which uh, travel has investigated and says, no, they're still putting out uh, things saying only one room left, and then actually we've discovered that there's a dozen rooms left. Uh, Booking.com says, actually, the Competition and Markets Authority hasn't found that we were at fault. Um, we've not admitted we're at fault. Uh, nothing to see here. Move on. And they say that they're, you know, complying with the rules but I think for anybody who's booking any kind of property uh, or indeed a flight never be rushed into thinking oh crikey I've got two minutes to decide otherwise I'll lose it Um, with accommodation almost all places at almost all times there will be empty rooms so you're not going to be sleeping out on the streets no, I mean, you would hope to not be misled either by any kind of website that you go on, but thank you very much indeed. Simon Calder reporting in live uh, from that hotbed uh, of the proletariat known as Knightsbridge. Uh, don't know what he's doing there. Maybe he's going to Harrods to pick up some of his uh, uh, vintage port. Who could say? Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. So if you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.